1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He's the uh, chairman of the Cato Institute and a constitutional scholar. We'll continue our conversation about the Second Amendment and gun control. Andrew Joppa is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Uh, We'll visit with Andy as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. space architecture and author of several books his latest is what makes humans truly exceptional it's a great read we'll visit with Larry as well it is uh April the 20th and on the 21st I should say and then on this day in uh, 1989 six days after the death of you bang the deposed reform-minded leader of Chinese Communist Party some 100,000 students gathered in Beijing's Tiananmen Square to commemorate Hugh and the voice of and to voice their discontent with China's authoritative communist government. The next day, an official memorial service for Hu Yobang was held in Tiananmen's Great Hall of the People. The student representatives carried a petition to the steps of the Great Hall, demanding to meet with Premier Lei Ping. The Chinese government refused such a meeting, leading to a general boycott of Chinese universities across the country and widespread calls for democratic reforms. Ignoring government warnings of violent suppression of any mass demonstrations, students from more than 40 universities began to march to Tiananmen on uh, the 27th. The students were joined by workers, intellectuals, and civil servants, and by mid-May, more than a a million people filled the square, the site of communist leaders Mao Zedong's uh, Proclamation of the People's Republic of China in 1949. On uh, May the 20th, the government formally declared martial law in Beijing and the troops and tanks were called in to disperse the dissidents. However, a large number of students and citizens blocked the army's advance, and by May 23rd, government forces had pulled back to the outskirts of Beijing. On June 3rd, with negotiations to end the protests stalled and calls for democratic reforms escalating, the troops received orders from the Chinese government to reclaim Tiananmen Square at all costs. By the end of the next day, Chinese troops had forcibly cleared Tiananmen Square and Beijing streets, killing hundreds of demonstrators and arresting thousands of protesters and other suspected dissidents. In the weeks after the government's crackdown, an unknown number of dissidents were executed and communist hardliners took firm control of the country. The international community was outraged at the incident, and economic sanctions were imposed by the United States and other countries sent China's economy into a decline. However, by late 1990, international trade had resumed thanks in part to Chinese release of several hundred imprisoned dissidents, uh, my guess is they don't have a Second Amendment in China. You know, here we have 450 people, or guns, I should say, owned by 330 Americans, 330 million Americans. Uh, point being is that it probably would be a little bit more difficult for the militia for the army to turn on its people if they know they're armed. Just another reason why we have the Second Amendment, in my opinion. The Florida Department of Health reported 77 new COVID-19 cases and two additional deaths in Collier County on Tuesday. Seven-day moving day uh, average in new cases was 91 through Monday. Tuesday, there were 60 patients in Collier County hospitals with COVID. The county is also 11.9% of its total hospital beds and 31.8% of its adult ICU beds available. So certainly we've flattened the curve here in Collier County i want to talk a little bit about this uh, case in, in Minneapolis, but before we do, did you hear about the peer-reviewed study done by Stanford University that demonstrates beyond reasonable doubt that face masks have absolutely zero chance of preventing the spread of COVID-19? No? Well, there's a reason for that. It's posted on the National Center for Biotechnological Information Government website. The NCBI is a branch of the National Institutes for Health so one would think that such a study would be widely reported by mainstream media and embraced by the science-loving folk in big tech. Instead, a web research, uh, search reveals it was picked up by zero mainstream media outlets and big tech tyrants will suspend people who post it, as political strategist Steve Cortez learned the hard way when he posted a tweet that went against the face mask narrative. The tweet itself featured a quote and a link from the promoted Twitter uh to suspend his account potentially indefinitely. Isn't that amazing? The NCBI study began with the following abstract. Many countries across the globe utilizing medical and non-medical face masks as non-pharmaceutical intervention for reducing the transmission and infectivity of coronavirus. Uh, Although scientific evidence supporting face mask efficacy is lacking, adverse physiological and psychological health uh, effects are established. It has been hypothesized that the face masks have compromised safety and efficacy profile and should be avoided from use. The current article comprehensively summarizes scientific evidence with respect to wearing face masks, providing uh, proper information for public health decision-making. The study concludes, and uh, the existing scientific evidence challenges the safety and efficacy of wearing face masks as preventive intervention for COVID-19. The data suggests that both medical and non-medical face masks are ineffective to block human-to-human transmission of viral and infectious disease such as SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, supporting against the usage of face masks. Wearing face masks has been demonstrated to have a substantial adverse physiological and psychological effects. These include hypoxia, uh, hypercapnia, shortness of breath, increased acidity, toxicity, uh, activation of fear and stress response, rise in stress hormones, immunosuppression, fatigue, headaches, decline in cognitive performance, predisposition for viral and infectious illnesses, chronic stress, anxiety, and depression. Long-term consequences of wearing face masks can cause health deterioration, developing and progression of chronic diseases, and premature death. That's from NIH. Face masks are harmful. They're not uh, helpful at all. They may perhaps uh, quell some of the fears that people have about getting coronavirus, but they're actually injured. That's why, quite frankly, I think you see an inverse relation between mask wearing and lockdowns in these northern states and the degree of infections. In the southern states like Florida, Texas, things are going just fine. You have to watch your health. All of us do. All right, let's talk a little bit about this Derek Chauvin, guilty on all counts in the murder of George Floyd. George Floyd last May, he, Chauvin was 45, was found guilty of second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. The prosecution arrested its case last week after calling for 38 witnesses and playing dozens of video clips. Over 11 days, the defense rested Thursday after calling only seven witnesses over two days. Makes me wonder about the competency of the uh, defense. Attorneys for both sides presented their closing arguments on Monday. President Joe Re- Biden reacted Tuesday to the verdict of Do- his uh, trial, of the co- finding him guilty in the murder of George Floyd. It was a murder in full sight of light of day, and it ripped the binders off the whole world to see the systemic racism a stain on our nation's soul, Biden said in the speech. Biden described the verdict as a step forward in their fight for justice in America. What is he talking about? But he also said it was a much too rare event when law enforcement was successfully prosecuted for the death of a black man in their custody. Vice President Kamala Harris introduced Biden. Uh, recalling the long history of systemic racism in America where black people were treated throughout the course of our history as less than human. Their lives must be valued in our education system, in our health care system, in our housing system, and in our economic system, in our criminal justice system, and in our nation, she said. All this race-baiting? Well, it's pretty creepy stuff, in my opinion. Why don't we just be concerned about the justice? Legal scholar Alan Dershowitz said he was doubtful that Derek Chauvin's guilty verdict was a product of due process and the rule of law. Instead, he pronounced the verdict the result of outside influences. He said, I have no real confidence in this verdict, which may be correct in some ways, but I have no confidence that the verdict was produced by due process and the rule of law. He said, rather than the influence of the crowd, the outside influences of Al Sharpton and Maxine Waters, he said, was like the sword of uh, Democles hanging over the jury, and they were basically saying indirectly to the jury, if you don't convict on the murder charge and all charges, the cities will burn, the country will be destroyed. And by the way, the uh, Minneapolis paper published the biographies, not the names of the biographies, in, pretty, in great detail of all the jurors, certainly making them vulnerable uh, if they found anything but a guilty verdict. Uh, Representative Maxine Waters, of course, flew in, asking for a police escort, by the way. And uh, she was there. She we've got to be more active. We've got to be more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know we mean business. <laughs> by the way, Democrats unanimously voted to defeat the Republican resolution to censure Maxine Waters after she incited violence. Uh, that great vote was 216 to 210, and you can imagine uh, on party lines. In a press conference in Minneapolis on Monday, the Reverend Al Sharpton, a civil rights figure who has been conferring with uh, the Floyd family, called George Floyd's death a lynching by knee and he called America's on trial. Dershowitz previously told Newsmax that recent comments made by Waters concerning the Chauvin trial were equivalent to putting not only a thumb, but an elbow on the scales of justice. So um, perhaps the verdict was right. I suspect it probably was in some ways, but I'm guessing there's going to be an appeal that will continue, of course, the race-baiting. Jurors should not be intimidated or influenced by what is going on in the courtroom, said Dershowitz. Candace Owen, she's a rock star. She does. She's great. She said there's two pandemics going on in America tonight. One is of ignorance and one is of cowardice. And I think she's absolutely right. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute, Bob Levy. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy, constitutional scholar, author, and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob.
1: Thank you, Bob. Uh, For our listeners' benefit, tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web.
1: Great organization fighting for liberty and freedom. So... um, The Second Amendment reads, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Pretty simple statement, but it's certainly become controversial over the years. So what do legal scholars say about the Supreme Court's view of the Second Amendment?
2: Well, there are a lot of legal scholars, including some prominent liberals, who acknowledge that the Second Amendment secures an individual right, not necessarily tied to the militia. Um, For example, Harvard's Alan Dershowitz says he hates guns and he would like to see the Second Amendment repealed. But then he says he condemns foolish liberals who are trying to read the Second Amendment out of the Constitution by claiming it's not an individual right. And another Harvard professor, Lawrence Tribe, a respected liberal uh, scholar, acknowledges that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms, limited by reasonable regulation, in the interest of public safety. So, tribe and Dershowitz and and many others on the left agree with gun rights advocates <clears throat> on two fundamental issues. First, the Second Amendment confirms an individual right, not just a collective right of the militia. And second, the right isn't absolute; it's subject to regulation. So, to the extent there is disagreement, it hinges on what constitutes. Uh, permissible regulation. Where do we draw that line?
1: Interesting. So the Heller case, uh, which you uh, uh, participated in, addressed D.C.'s gun ban. But what about gun laws outside of D.C.?
2: Well, you're right that D.C. was not the whole story. And for the rest of the picture, you had to wait two years for a follow-up case in 2010 called McDonald versus Chicago. That case determined that the Second Amendment applies not only to federal jurisdictions like D.C. or Guam, Samoa, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, but also to each and every state and localities. So D.C. is not a state. It's a federal enclave. Congress exercises legislative power in D.C., and that's one reason why we filed the Heller case in D.C., because we didn't want to deal with this question of whether the Second Amendment was applicable to the states. Mm -hmm. We just wanted a four-square declaration that the Second Amendment secures an individual right. You know, until until the 14th Amendment was ratified, the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government. The First Amendment, for example, says, Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about the states making laws. Mm -hmm. Well, we discovered over about 70 years that the states can be every bit as tyrannical as the feds. Uh, slavery, for example. So, you know, we had a civil war, and we passed these three post-Civil War amendments, including the 14th, which prevents the states from violating due process and equal protection. The 14th Amendment was used to apply, the technical term is incorporate the Bill of Rights so that they could be invoked against the states. It didn't occur in one fell swoop. It was accomplished provision by provision, first free speech, then religion, then Mm. protection against unreasonable searches, and remarkably, until 2010, that's just, you know, 11 years ago, Mm -hmm. the McDonald case, the court had not decided whether the Second Amendment is incorporated. That's what McDonald addressed, and now the Second Amendment, like virtually all of the Bill of Rights applies to all of the states, not just federal enclaves like D.C.
1: See, that is so interesting, Bob. I wasn't aware of that. So how did the court decide whether Second Amendment rights would be incorporated against the states?
2: Well, the criterion for incorporation, according to the court, is whether the right is deemed to be fundamental. And that's a term of art. And what it means is, in the court's uh, terminology, that the right is deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and culture, or it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And in both the Heller case and the McDonald case, the Supreme Court said, yes, the Second Amendment is fundamental. Now, what that means is that Americans enjoy a presumption of individual liberty, and government bears a heavy burden to justify any gun control regulations. So state or federal regulators would have to show three things. First, public safety requires the proposed regulation. Second, the regulation's going to work. And third, there's no better way to reach the same end without compromising Second Amendment rights. So it's not up to me to show I need a gun. It's up to the government to demonstrate that there's a need to limit my rights to have a gun.
1: Well, you can see certainly uh, certain national figures are not behaving that way, but... What's the current status of gun rights? I mean, where do we stand after the Heller and McDonald cases?
2: Well, the battle was a three-part process. Step one, what does the Second Amendment mean? That was completed in Heller. It means we have an individual right, for, among other things, to defend ourselves. Step two, determine where does the Second Amendment apply. That was completed in McDonald. It applies everywhere, not just D.C. Step three, what's the scope of of second amendment rights that is what restrictions are still going to be permitted and that's the the next major test nobody believes that these gun rights are absolute you know the second amendment quite obviously doesn't guarantee the right of an 11-year-old to have a machine gun in front of the right house white house when the president's taking a stroll on the lawn so some persons and some weapons and some circumstances are going to be subject uh, to regulation and that's the same framework we have for other rights you know the first amendment says no law bridging freedom of speech and yet we have all kinds of laws you can't falsely shout fire in a crowded theater you can't incite a riot you can't lie in commercial ads you can't defame people so neither the right to free speech nor the right to bear arms is absolute they can be regulated mm-hmm. even though both of those rights are constitutionally guaranteed
1: that is so interesting, and yet you know, some of the proposed gun regulations, many times you eat in the fine print, they go much further than they're intended or as they propose. So it's it's a difficult difficult balance. Right, one final question in this uh, segment, uh, Bob: Did Justice Scalia provide any guidance as to what regulations the Second Amendment allows?
2: Well, he wrote the Heller opinion. He concluded that it uh, that the Second Amendment secured an individual rights <clears throat> to bear arms in the home for lawful purposes, including self-defense. But then he explicitly stated that Heller did not, and this is a quote from the opinion, didn't cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications and here he meant background checks, on the commercial sale of uh, firearms. And he also noted that there was historical support for prohibiting the carrying of dangerous uh, uh, or unusual weapons like, you know, a flamethrower or an an IED. So, you know, the state of Florida could have adopted any of those kinds of restrictions without violating the Second Amendment as interpreted in Heller. State's however, can always grant you more protection than the federal government. And so that's what Florida has done. Florida imposes fewer restrictions than would have been allowed uh, by Heller. And by contrast, some other states regulate or even ban, for example, so-called assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And for the most part, we don't have the complete picture yet, but for the most part, those regulations, have not been overturned uh,
1: by the courts. Yeah, so interesting. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute. We're talking about the, not the politics, but the policy and the law about guns and the Second Amendment. Bob, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you. And again, the website is Cato, C-A-T-O uh, dot org. Coming up, Professor Andrew Joppa, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. to the Bob Harden Show, and now here's your host,
1: Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now, we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa. He's also the author of a terrific read. It's called Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. Well, yesterday a guilty verdict came down. Uh, Cho, uh, J- Joe is going to jail, apparently, uh, sentenced in, in uh, eight weeks. So what are your thoughts about all this?
3: Well, there's, there's no doubt that he's going to go to jail. I, I think probably uh, as this sentencing takes place, we're going to look at maximum sentencing because I think aggravating factors will be applied, aggravating factors. Uh, for example, a, son, a child was on the scene Uh, I think they'll rule certainly that was an aggravating factor, and they'll rule excessive cruelty was used in the dealing with George Floyd, and I think those will uh, take the uh, second-degree murder charge, which uh, is 40 years, and it will extend it out to its absolute maximum, uh, and perhaps even generate uh, additional time. I think uh, uh, Chauvin will never uh, see the light of day. Uh, If we look at some of the commentary taking place right now, there's a there's two things going on. First of all, an exuberance about the, uh, the wonder of the American judicial system. So uh, uh, let me say the obvious first. The, the, the killing of George Floyd was a horrible thing to watch and a horrible thing that it occurred. And I do believe that, uh, that Chauvin was guilty of an offense. Um, I think the, um, the mindset for most people uh, looking at all the evidence uh, prior to the jury uh, coming up with this verdict was manslaughter was the right charge. Um, my legal mind is not astute enough to understand how you can convict someone of three charges, uh, homicide charges, all of which are charges created to create a nuanced difference between second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. So uh, they found them guilty on all of those things. They did so in a very limited deliberation period, uh, asking for no additional information for the, from the judge. Uh, they, they had no notes on this. Uh, this was uh, predicted, actually, in advance by Andrew McCarthy, that one of the ways you'd be able to tell whether the jury was functioning under extreme pressure were exactly those phenomenon, the, the rapid uh, verdict, the, uh, the failure to call for additional information, and so forth. So um, certainly there was extreme pressure on this jury, which included... Uh, their uh, visualization of the boarding up uh, of of the, the city, uh, also the, um, the 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 pig's head with blood uh, delivered to a witness's uh, home, um, the 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 general tenor of the uh, the entire country for months prior to this, with two billion dollars worth of damage and twelve deaths. So, the only point I'm making, and I, I don't want to relieve uh, Chauvin of. of of all guilt. I think he was guilty. I think there was a moment uh, at the very end of this process where he could have uh, relinquished his pressure hold. But uh, if the the prosecution made absolutely no attempt, Bob, in my estimation, uh, to, in fact, uh, challenge, did Chauvin in any way violate The written codes of conduct in comparable situations for the Minneapolis police force. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the defense did an excellent job at laying out exactly uh, the police conduct that is expected in every particular moment of the contact with George Floyd. Uh, And I saw nothing that would have disputed that Chauvin acted in exactly that manner. Um, it's a very difficult situation to discuss because you, no one wants to dismiss the, uh, the death of a human being. And I'm not, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm just saying, was this justice? I, I, I have a tough time believing that this was justice. And a lot of the additional commentary is not just the uh, exuberance dedicated to the uh, glorification of the American judicial system, but also there's a, a, a large group of people commenting that this was not justice, primarily because it did not deal with systemic racism. Uh, There's a uh, a rebuttal going on to the prosecution's position that it was only Chauvin on trial and not the Minneapolis police force. Mm -hmm. In other words, many of the people in this situation believe that unless the prosecution was able to deliver a strong condemnation of the entire police force that this was, this was not justice. And before I sum up my, my opening comments here, Bob, so to speak, uh, there was a comment made by uh, Jerry Blackwell in his uh, final prosecution summation where he said anyone, and I don't know why no one has cited this particular uh, quotation, uh, Jerry Blackwell said anyone having gone through what George Floyd went through on that morning would have died. And I think that's absolutely absurd to presume that that was the case. It is also absurd to presume uh, that uh, his uh, triple the dose of lethal fentanyl in his body had nothing to do with it. I think it's absurd to ignore that there wasn't narcotics-induced excited delirium. So uh, I think there were a lot of things ignored. Uh, Would the world have been exalting in American justice if uh, Chauvin had either walked or been charged with the lesser of the three counts. I, I do not believe so. I think they're uh, talking about American justice only in the sense that it did, in this particular case, what it wanted them to do.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so sad in my view. Uh, I mean, I, I think there was a, a extreme pressure on the jury, so I'm quite certain that they did not make a uh, 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 you know a balanced de- decision. I mean, they've come to the same decision, but the, the, the point is that they were under tr- extreme pressure. A second point I want to make is that uh, race pimp Al Sharpton comes to town. Uh, you listen to the president, uh, of course, uh, Maxine Waters' inexplicable behavior going to Minneapolis, asking, by the way, for for a police escort <laughs> to, in the process. But uh, and then the president and uh, Kamala Harris's comments about the verdict. Uh, it you know to me, it, it looks like guilty verdict is just not enough. This is systemic racism. We have a long way to go. Uh, just this slog through the the incessant decision or, or uh, accusation that we have systemic racism here and, in the United and States. And the
3: numbers put much of this to, to lie, or at least to a diminished uh, um, importance. We look at the number of of African-Americans killed by the police who were not armed. And the the number is generally given as 15 in the year 2019. Uh, Percentage-wise, there's a far greater possibility of of, uh, being shot unarmed by police if you're white. So, again, all of these things are are wrong, obviously. And I'm not trying to say that those percentages make anything uh, right all I'm suggesting is that there's a dramatic overstatement of the uh, of the potentialities for um, uh, for a, a black being killed by police. The numbers do not verify that yeah you use the term inexplicable in terms of Maxine Water's actions and I I, I read one interesting attempt to explain those actions and uh, that was that she actually wanted the potential for a mistrial to exist yeah uh, to drag the, it out the, the premise was that she in fact, Ah uh, was trying to stoke the fires of a mistrial to keep active the uh, the, um, the street rioting and so forth uh, in 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 terms of the George Floyd situation. Obviously, no one knows whether that's true or not. Uh, but then that may be a, an explanation. Um, let me just turn to Judge Cahill Cahill for a moment on this. Uh, that there wasn't a change of venue uh, seems to be inappropriate. That the jury wasn't sequestered. Uh, that there was not a, he, when Cahill indicates that the comments of Maxine Waters could result in a mistrial under appeal, uh, I do not understand why Cahill would not have acted on that himself. Let, let me correct myself. I do understand. He did not want uh, his ongoing involvement with a with a, a, a new trial in, in this situation. Right, so, right. Uh, he uh, pre- prevented the, the statement, his own statement of a mistrial. He did suggest that there would be grounds perhaps at least for a mistrial at the pellet level um and perhaps that was exactly what uh, what maxine waters was trying to do is to create the atmosphere a, 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 a hot atmosphere let's say as it pertains to the ongoing situation with george exploit, and it will be an ongoing situation well that on my mind
1: I, I you know i I, give, I i think you give her too much credit i don't think she's that smart but perhaps she had other people who were stoking these fires and gave her the idea. Listen, I ha- we have so much more to talk about besides this trial. Let's, uh, can you stick around? I'll be here. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Bob
1: thanks so much for joining us here on the show uh, take a look at choice social it's a new refreshing social networking platform pretty cool and you can check it out by visiting choice choicesocial, social us choice coming up we're going to visit with professor larry bell right now we continue the conversation with professor andrew joppa and author of josephus of Oz. again andy thank you so much for joining us Good to be with you, Bob. So, you know, it's kind of interesting talking about this uh, trial, that, uh, the guilty verdict last night, uh, and uh, in juxtaposition to Officer Sicknick in Washington, D.C., and his death, uh, it seems to me there's kind of a double standard on justice. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, of course, there is in America right now. Justice is uh, something that yields to the political pressure. That's all it is. Um, yeah. So I'll just leave that that comment there. One one sort of parting comment about the uh, circumstance with George Floyd. The autopsy showed there were there was no signs of suff- suffocation. So th- there are so many things that were um, left out of the the final verdict, in my estimation, by the jury. Uh, I think that they could have found them guilty for manslaughter, but the second degree murder is uh, a, a bridge too far. But getting back to uh, Officer Sipney, it uh, was long uh, reported uh, that he had been. Uh, killed by being hit in the head with a uh, fire extinguisher that was uh, reported by uh, every leftist media outlet. Even when that was thrown into doubt by some, some of the commentary by Sicknick's mother that uh, he had called the next morning and said he was feeling fine, uh, now it's been finally confirmed with the autopsy that he died of, of natural causes. He died from strokes. The question then becomes: well, Why? Why was the left so insistent that uh, that Sicknick was murdered? And I think the answer is fairly obvious. All of the other deaths that occurred that day on January 6, twenty one, were all uh, deaths to Trump supporters. They needed a death. They needed a violent death uh, to document their narrative. And I think that they they picked on the the Sicknick situation as mm-hmm. that uh, as that documentation that this was a violent assault on the. Uh, the existing um, uh, forces that be in in the in the Capitol building and and Sicknick was their was their uh, focus of choice. Uh, I think right now there, there's no backing away and uh, from their original position that he was killed with a fire extinguisher uh, because they still retain that need to uh, have the narrative documented by by Sicknick. So that. that that's a uh, an important situation for several reasons. First of all, the original premise as to why it happened. Secondly, the failure of the media to redress their original and, I think, blatant lie as it pertains to the sick Nick death. Um, let, let me stop there. you have any comments on yeah, that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, and then the, where's the uh, justice uh, for, uh, uh, now nah, I've forgotten her name, but the woman that was killed there in the... In the in the uh, Capitol Dome. Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt, thank you. Uh, where's the justice there? I mean, uh, again, uh, they back off on and decide, decide not to prosecute the guy who killed her. And I'm not even sure it was a police officer, but we certainly saw the gun reaching through the crowd and firing it towards her with no warning, and yet they've decided not to. We don't know who that person is that did it, number one. Of course, I know that the uh, FBI does, and the police, police know uh, who he is. But uh, there's going to be no prosecution. That is... I just think about the double standard there.
3: There's no transparency there. The, the last I've heard on this, and certainly I, uh, I've i seen the video where it can be documented, it's, it's just a, a point of interest that uh, this was an African-American uh, that uh, that shot Ashley Babbitt. That can certainly play into the suppression of information. Uh, I also heard that he was a security guard for one of the senators in the Capitol building. So this was not a uh, a law enforcement officer that uh, committed the act. That's the last I've heard on this. Uh, But again, a security guard for for one of the senators. So um, but again, the, the absolute lack of transparency is is so blatant in this situation as to be uh, nearly uh, nearly criminal in its political implications. So uh, l- let me, just, before we run out of time, let me just mention that the president has signed into, not signed into uh, law, but has uh, given his, uh, his blessing to the D.C. statehood process, uh, which, again, is a blatant politicization of, of what's going on right now to increase the number of Democrat senators uh, in, uh, in the Senate as uh, D.C. gains statehood. Uh, I would just like to make a suggestion. Why not just move the non-federal area of Washington, D.C. into Maryland or, or Virginia or both? Uh, in other words, rather than creating a state because these people have uh, taxed without representation, move them into uh, existing political uh, areas where they would have representation. But uh, we're going to see this happening. Uh, I think it will happen. I think in addition to that happening, I think we can predict that reparations in some form uh, will take place. Uh, This is going to be a very difficult process uh, in terms of the logistics, especially since of the 250,000 free slaves in the South at that point in time, the point of, let's say, the Civil War, uh, 4,000 of those 250,000 owned slaves, the largest slaveholder in Charleston, South Carolina, was an African-American. Yeah. So once we weave into this discussion, not only the, the late entrance into America, people from the Caribbean and from Africa who were not derivative of, of slave grandparents, great grandparents, and so forth, uh, we also have the implication that many blacks, 4,000 by, by actual count, were slaveholders themselves with... Uh, approximately 20,000 slaves owned by these, by these, uh, by these blacks. So again, this is not to dismiss any of the problems associated with slavery, but uh, to talk about reparations as as an issue, which again is is nothing more than a politicized leftist position at this point.
1: Yeah, but how about the 600,000 soldiers that lost their lives lives in defense of keeping the republic together? Uh, to me, that's the ultimate reparation right there, and we should move on.
3: So, certainly, it was it was a major statement made. I, I have a major issue with that myself. I, I to have sacrificed that many lives for something that could have been accomplished and was being accomplished worldwide uh, through peaceful means seemed to be uh, almost a willful intent of Lincoln to offer moral payback for slavery, and uh, uh, it just it just seemed it's always seemed very uh, very excessive to me. Plus, I've heard uh, actually I've read documentation that the. Uh, the damage done to the South uh, during the Civil War and in the uh, post period uh, f- far exceeded the cost, far exceeded the benefits derived by the South through the use of slavery. And again, that does not dismiss slavery as a, as a horrible institution. But uh, I think our conversations tend to be so limited in terms of their understanding of the, the full event uh, that we, again, they're always being politicized, and certainly right now with the Biden administration, that's being uh, being taken to the to the nth degree. You're, you pointed out Biden's comment after the conviction of Chauvin uh, that this was systemic racism in America, which which dominates the American landscape. So. Uh, we're we're in for a, a long ride. We're already <laughs> into yeah. that long ride, and it's not going to ease up because of the Chauvin uh, guilty verdict.
1: No, it's not. The guilt uh, guilty verdict is not enough. Wow. All the systemic racism. I mean, the narrative just continues. And by the way, uh, just to, to your point earlier, uh, th- there was a narrative that I think the Democrats put together the, in order to uh, convict Trump, on uh, impeach Trump, and convict him. Uh, and tried to uh, make this whole January 6th thing uh, an insurrection. Well, it fell apart. (laughs) It's just totally fallen apart. And uh,
3: That's why they needed the Sicknick death. That's right. That that would have complicated the issue for the president if it had gone to any legal challenge.
1: You're absolutely right. Andrew Joppa, again, professor uh, and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, I really appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk soon, Bob. All right, thank you. All right, coming up we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell and dad professor at the University of Houston that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Welcome
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell. He's an endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. He's played a major role in the space program before it was shut down. He's also the author of several books. His latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. It's a great read. Uh, Also, uh, he's written a column for uh, Newsmax. We'll talk about that in a moment. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a
4: pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Always a pleasure, Professor. So, again, I just want to reiterate how much I enjoyed, uh, again, this book. I've read, I think, almost all of your books, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, this one is really interesting, and it, you know, it really talks about what an interesting phenomenon it is that we actually end up on Earth as human beings in a safe place to be.
4: Yeah, it's it's a it's a great place to be, and uh, you know, as I get older, I appreciate it more and more. How uh, we have to you know, take it every day at a time and and live it fully.
1: Absolutely. Um, so i encourage our listeners uh, what makes humans truly exceptional by Larry Bell check it out it's a great read now your column in Newsmax beware zombies carrying Biden's banned ghost guns this is a column about the second amendment and guns tell us about it
2: well
4: we knew that the uh, you know the second amendment issues were going to come up with the Biden administration and and of course now we're, we're seeing some evidence of that and I think what uh, you know—it's—it's it's always a stealth tactic where where bills are passed and executive orders are issued that sound fairly benign and and uh, the notion of uh, you know this this last uh, series of executive orders that talked about uh, banning you know, stabilizing braces on on pistols that make them convert them into. Kind of rifle looking things and and uh and the and the ghost guns and you say, well, what in the world's a ghost gun you know we we keep coming up with these new terms and well mm-hmm. the idea is that uh three d printed guns I guess is the idea that people are building guns in their basement that don't have serial numbers and going out doing mass murders with them and so on, which is which is pretty much a stretch mm-hmm as um, they call them ghost guns, you know that you know, because they don't have an identity, I guess, or and and uh, so that was kind of kind of what I emphasized in this article. And um, I think what it is behind it is, you know, they they they're, they've always been wanting to reinstate uh, restrictions, the, the old Clinton ban on so-called assault rifles, mm-hmm. and the uh, principal uh, target being the AR-15s, which are very popular guns uh, for sportsmen and particularly for you know, recreational shooters and so on, and, and uh, it's always a slippery slope because, you know, they, they get morphed into saying, well, they're weapons of war, you know, and I say, well, gee, I guess a, a sharp stick is a weapon of war, you know, where does, where does it end? Right but but the, the the thing with the uh you know, is so popular to have custom customization kits you know and i'm a i'm I'm a shooter i'm a pistol shooter more than a rifle shooter, but I've got a lot of custom guns and they you know they were that I built or that have been built for me and they they rely on you know they use kit parts mm-hmm. and so without banning the you know the guns you can uh directly you can ban the parts. They go into making the guns, and I think that's that's probably what the agenda is: is to, as soon as you ban so-called parts kits, which they talk about, mm-hmm. you know, for ghost guns, it's uh, basically a license, and to say, well, let's let's control the supply of of parts that people can build guns from, mm-hmm. and we can go after the gun manufacturers, and we can also go after the parts manufacturers. Then we'll go after to the bullet manufacturers, and basically, they'll accomplish what they want, uh, you know, through these kind of slippery slope, stealth
1: tactics. So interesting. I mean, that, that, when you take a look at what they want to do, and trying, and, uh, relate it somehow to the problem they're trying to solve, which is uh, mass murders, and you know, this <laughs> is the things that we see in uh, in, in schools. Uh, but the point is that they rarely what they want to do rarely relates to actually the weapons that are being used. For example, in Virginia Tech, uh, the guy had a lot of uh, ammo, but he basically was using a pistol to kill all these people, and it's uh, pretty much true with uh, most of the places. So, really, what they're what to your, I think the point that you're making is that tr- you know this this is an effort to take the back door in order to reduce uh, availability of, of uh, weapons and ammunition.
4: Well, that's true, and and you know, we have we have an example of, of again the the Clinton uh, restrictions on on, on uh, assault weapons ban, and and subsequent to that, uh, you know, it, it it didn't work. It expired, and it was supposed to be a ten year thing, renewable, and it expired in two thousand four under President George W. Bush, but. Uh, a 1997 study of that report said it really didn't accomplish anything you know that and had only a very limited effect because you know these 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 banned weapons and magazines were, were no more than a very modest fraction of any murders and, and in 2004 a Department of Justice study came up with similar conclusions and said that that you know these were these types of weapons were were never used in, in any significant amount of of, of murders or, uh, you know, various homicides. And as far as high-capacity magazines, there's very few incidents where there's more than 10, uh, 10 rounds shot. Mm-hmm. So they said it's, it's really too small to even measure. Uh, and then also, FBI crime reporting in nineteen in two thousand seventeen said that that there were uh four times as many people uh killed with knives and cutting instruments than any kind of rifle. Rifles aren't usually used in in, in homicides and and uh in fact they were you know used far fewer than blunt instruments including uh either you know hammers or clubs or hands or feet. So it really has nothing to do with with uh, solving the crime problem. I think it's just more of an anti-gun religion and and I think people are rightly concerned that it infringes upon uh, the rights that we have that seem to be under assault in uh, every dimension.
1: You know, Professor, it's kind of interesting to watch this as, as this uh uh, discourse elevates how uh, you see gun sales go up 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 <laughs> so it's yeah. it's almost like they're getting paid off by the gun manufacturers professor larry bell again the name of the book is what makes humans truly exceptional i encourage you to get a copy professor always appreciate your commentary here in the show thank you so much for joining us hey, Bob, i always enjoy it thank you so much my pleasure indeed hey i want to uh, just point out that the tsunami too many i should say uh, usa fund uh, dr susan wilson is a saint she's a wonderful woman and she's been uh helping uh kids who are orphans in africa uh to number one be able to go to school the kids the they require a uniform in order to order to go to school she helps them get bicycles she's just doing so many wonderful things i hope you'll visit the website uh Tumaini Fund, T U M A I N I, Tumaini Fund USA.org is the website. Check it out. And also, there's a silent auction going on right now and an event on Sunday evening. It's a Zoom event. And again, you can find out my boy visiting Tumaini Fund USA.org slash events. Uh, Great organization, and uh, it's just unbelievable what this woman was able to accomplish with so little resources. Uh, they need our support. 2 org. Well, that's wrapping here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with uh, uh, Bob Rommel, our uh, state representative. Keith Flaw is the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Bill Barnett will be joining us. He's the former mayor of Naples. Always interesting commentary, as well as Seton Motley, the founder
0: dot com.